0: Hey, David, yo, welcome back, man. How do you, uh, how do you feel about you being away and letting me just do whatever I wanted?
1: You know what I have, we, we have to discuss things. Okay. But this is, uh, that's going to be a a conversation that we have not on the show, uh, behind closed doors, like mature adults.
0: Yeah. We don't want to (laughs) scare our very special guest away. That's for sure. Now, uh, do you know where you're not going to hear any arguments from us today? Uh, Where's that? This episode of the Scene on Screen Podcast.
2: Hey, whether it's your favorite tabletop adventure, movie, or video game, we've got you covered. Welcome to the Scene on Screen Podcast with your hosts, Sean and David.
0: The theme, the theme song that never gets old. Not the seam song. Welcome to the Scene on Screen podcast with your hosts Sean and David. David, before we begin, I just want to thank our guest last week, uh, Adam Glass, for coming onto the show, doing his uh, his take on Y two Cameron, and really just letting us into his world. I thought that was a lot of fun, and uh, it's too bad you missed it. But I'm glad you're feeling better, buddy.
1: I'm I'm feeling well, and I. I had to get better just for this episode. I'm sorry for uh, for last week, but uh, as most of our listeners know, Sean and I are huge fans of Walkabout Mini Golf, and any chance that we can get to talk about the game, and better yet, talk to the people who make the game. I mean, I could be on my deathbed, but I would get uh, as much medication pumped into my body just so that I have enough energy to talk about this game and speaking of which that's what we're doing today we have a special guest today i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher this name (laughs) don sean you gotta do this
0: (laughs) don don carson (laughs) (laughs) how how are you welcome to the show and uh (laughs) david and i pretend we can't read names all the time so it's all good welcome welcome how are you i'm very well thank you thanks for having me we're, we're so excited to have you now from what we understand your your title is the senior art director at mighty coconut and you're specifically working on just walkabout mini golf correct that's correct and uh what do, why don't we start with a softball for for everyone tell us a little bit about yourself tell us what you do at mighty coconut and my, what you did previously
2: Okay, well, currently at Mighty Coconut, uh, although the title is senior art director, I think the senior part m- m- has nothing more to do with the fact that my hair is graying than anything. <laughs> but, uh, so I kind of live on the front end of projects, uh, working with uh, Lucas and Henning and coming up with the future courses and, and sort of mapping out the direction. And then it's handed off to our ensemble of amazing people who take those rough drawings and concepts and turn them into uh, finished courses. So that's what I'm doing now. Um, that wasn't uh, games wasn't necessarily my original sort of career trajectory. I was an illustration major back in college, and then made my way in the late '80s to Walt Disney Imagineering, and I worked for six years on various theme park attractions before leaving, moving to Oregon in the mid '90s, and started having a hybrid of career of both theme park design and video game work. And I feel like I am now in the perfect place to use the combination of both of those skills on the courses that we're designing.
0: Excellent. What other video games have you worked on? Are, are you allowed to tell us?
2: Yeah, most of them are sort of um, also ran. I worked for Dynamics, which was a subsidiary of Sierra Online, which was based here in Eugene, Oregon. And I was um, working, uh, initially I was supposed to be working on all the education projects, but by the time I got hired and moved up here, they dissolved the education department. Mm -hmm. And I was working on uh, some games that have gone into obscurity, not even worth mentioning, Um, and then uh, a lot of the 3D Ultra uh, products, which were everything from Contraptions, the uh, 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 Incredible Machine, and there's actually a mini golf game I worked on, RC Racers, Trains, you name it, uh, most tween uh, products, and then eventually went and worked for their.com, and then uh, InView.com on uh, sort of massive multiplayer uh, chat environments online, which all was very similar to the kind of stuff that we uh, are doing with the mass, the massive, not the the not ma- less than massive, but multiplayer experiences in Walkabout. Awesome. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excited that we have somebody of your
0: stature here. Um, senior title aside, because I, 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 I love the joke, but when it comes to just conceptualizing your next idea for Walkabout, how does it kind of, how does it, how does that storyboard start? Because we're playing 20,000 leagues under the sea right now. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but even labyrinth, like we, we learned from some of your, your coworkers and peers, what it took to kind of get that going. But now that you have this position, how do you decide what's kind of next up on the storyboard?
2: Uh, Well, as far as future courses, we have a, a, board that has like a hundred different ideas on it. So we have no end of things that we would all like to work on. Uh, Lucas is the one who will finally decide which we pick. Uh, and a lot of that is orchestrating what feels like the next nice fit and what's a nice juxtaposition to the last thing we did. So, you know, to do, uh, to do uh, Labyrinth and then to do 20,000 Leagues uh, feel like uh, very, very different flavors um, same with Sweetopia, uh, was a very, very different experience from the courses that came before it. Uh, so he's doing a lot of balancing as to what will be the, the next one and what will surprise the players. I think that when we announced that we were going to be working with the Henson folks, the response was, what? <laughs> and then, yeah. that sounds great. Um, and then now working with the Cyan uh, team uh, on Mist Island, all of us you know, grew up and love Mist. And so to be able to work on it in any capacity, to be able to, to trot around on Mist Island and then desecrate it by putting miniature golf all over it uh, has been just a complete honor. Uh, but I think it, that also surprised people that that was one of the places that we were going. So Luca spends a lot of time sort of crafting out the sort of this and next year's worth of courses so that there's always kind of a surprise. There's something new and different that we're doing that you hadn't seen before. I will tell you I was surprised, yeah.
1: So you joined Mighty Coconut during the development of Sweet topia correct?
2: Mhm. This is this is my year anniversary this month. Okay, sweet. Um so I don't know if you you
1: might not be able to uh testify to this, but would you say the development is substantially different for courses that are based off of uh, of existing themes like 20,000 Leagues or Labyrinth or Mist, versus uh, more uh, unique courses that you guys have developed themselves, like Sweetopia, for example. Um, how, how do you feel the, the development process differs in regards to developing something that is conceptually your own versus a licensed product?
2: Well, let's see. The, if it's ours, the sky's the limits. So we can do anything we want, and then we're just sort of pulling from our sort of collective idea of what would the coolest, sweet, landscape, Willy Wonka, Candyland environment possibly be. Uh, when we're doing something that's IP-based, especially if we're lucky enough to work on one that we love to begin with, our main goal is just to do our best homage to it. Uh, but we also have the IP owner to, that we're meeting with continuously to just make sure that we're on the right track. And so far, all the things that we've, we have we uh, have worked on and are working on into the future, we have really wonderful partners who get really our aesthetic. I think that was one of the selling points with the Labyrinth was that a, a lot of weight was taken off the shoulders of the Henson marketing people because we weren't trying to photographically recreate the sets from the film. We were kind of doing our Lego version. You know, mm-hmm. it's the, like Lego uh, Harry Potter. There's a, a lot of leeway to uh, artistic interpretation. And I think that was one of the joys of working with the Henson folks that we did. We did have that, that walkabout aesthetic to work with. Uh, but uh, we throw ourselves probably equally same amount of energy uh, when we're doing a non-IPs or doing an IPed one. We just don't have as many meetings with the owners of the IPs if uh, Jules Verne is not around to ask.
0: that that is very (laughs) fair um i wanted to touch on labyrinth a little bit the one thing david and i said when we first played that game and like we always make a point uh a new map dropped we have to play it together we have to fox hunt together those are the rules and this was uh, like twenty thousand was one of the first ones we didn't get to play together because we both had varying schedules the one thing we both said immediately when we played labyrinth was wow this is interactive not interactive with like the golfers and the the changes of aesthetics for your your character, but just how interactive the game was itself. And some of the interaction that happened led you to clues in Fox Hunt because you remembered where those those things were while you were doing the Fox Hunt. What made you guys start having the map become more interactive? Like
1: I, we know I, there's I think by interactive you mean more like alive.
0: Sorry, because, alive. Yeah like
1: because with characters hopping around and moving and stuff like that you can you can stand right in front of them and it feels like you could talk to them you can reach out and touch them which was that was the first map that had the characters in there actually moving around that you can walk right up to where everything else was more so just you're you're there after things have happened right like there's the in sweetopia we found like all the like the bodies in the bottom of the the one Uh, pit and stuff like that and and the worlds feel almost empty but labyrinth was so much more alive and it brought the experience to a a whole different level because there is that different level of like sean said interactivity but it was it it brought more life to it is is that the plan moving forward is to have more things like that and and kind of how did that change um in regards to development
2: we're definitely working more and more, and I think a lot of that is sort of the theme park influence that I bring, is that uh, there are opportunities to design a space in such a way that it feels like, like you said, someone who was just there and they just left, that there's that there's, this, there's still the, the hot coffee is sitting on the table, despite the fact the drinker isn't there. Uh, Labyrinth was special because um, we didn't intend to put as many figures in it as we did, uh, but once you got into it, it was like, well, we have to have Ludo. Oh, we have to have the worm. Oh, we can't do it without a couple goblins. Um, and so the list got longer and longer. But we did struggle a lot because in uh, the theme park attraction, you basically have an animatronic that's running through its cycle. And mm-hmm. there, there can be a, a feeling that you are disconnected from it. It's like a, it's an animated waxwork. Uh, that's there and we were terrified that that was what it was going to feel like that when you saw Hoggle and he was going through his 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 little animation um, and we also talked about whether or not they interacted with you in any way and we 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 knew we didn't want to have dialogue but we decided just to have them be themselves in in the act of doing something that we remembered from the film and I think we were pleasantly surprised that that despite the fact that you can't actually interact with them you can't touch them you can just stand be in the presence of them they are alive you know hoggle is really effective as he's you know running around poisoning fairies mm-hmm. um uh it, it took us by surprise it it definitely was we bit off way more than we would realized when we worked on that particular course and i don't think you'll see that much animated characters at least not in the current um, courses we're working on uh, but we are like in 20,000 Leagues, we did include the, the, octop- the squid that's attacking. Um, and there's a little bit more animation as far as the things like the arrival sub as you come into the, the submarine. All those things are things we are doing more of. Uh, but we do want there to be a sense of life, a sense that things are. this is a living space, uh, not an abandoned space.
0: Yeah, with 20,000, you kind of get both of those feelings at the same time taking the sub in i first didn't understand why i couldn't move like i could move around the little submarine but i couldn't do anything else i was like what is going on here and then like i i left the game to watch it again to like really kind of take it in and the doors magically open and yeah while it does seem like it's vacated that squid is just going to town on that the the sub and it's really really cool Everything feels lived in. Like, it doesn't feel kind of like it was all abandoned. Well, obviously, the squid took over and everybody left. But, like, you know, it's a it's a very fun, positive feel. The one thing that I, I did notice between Labyrinth and 20,000 was I thought Labyrinth took a lot to the extremes. Like, there are some hard holes on that course. I, I, I fared a little bit better on my first run with 20,000. I don't know if it's just because you can see kind of the lines in which you're, you're supposed to shoot, but can, can you walk us through how you choose the difficulty of a course and what you're kind of expecting when you're, you're laying out the course?
2: Um, a lot of that work is being done uh, by Henning and Lucas, and it is a constant back and forth sort of struggle to find that right balance between just a traditional mini golf you know, hole that isn't all full of tricks and, and difficult uh, obstacles with a couple of ones that are a little bit more challenging. Um, uh, and during, I've seen it during the course of it, we do many play tests in the various stages of design. So like our first play test may be in a very rudimentary version of what will eventually be a fully theatrically lit animated uh, course. And those those holes will change a lot between each play test as they're not nudging it. And I find it really quite amazing that those two guys can come up, can continue to come up with unique goals, uh, despite the fact they've done hundreds and hundreds of them now with all the courses we've done, and they're doing many, many more in the new ones. But I have witnessed a lot of fine-tuning that happens, and also a lot of that happens in the beta testing, too. We have a, a group on the Discord who will, uh, will play and give us really honest answers as to what things are too easy or too hard. Uh, and we also have people who come and play just for the, the act of just having a good time with friends and other ones that are really, really serious golfers who really want to uh, to master each of the holes. So it's always balancing those audiences and how much fun it is to interact with the holes that's being considered.
0: Okay, so when it comes to IPs that you're working with, you've obviously done 20,000, you've done Labyrinth. What is your dream scenario? Maybe you're not working on it right now, but what's your dream IP to work on? Um,
2: well, I can't say cuz we might be working on it. Uh but uh
1: Oh snap. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: <laughs> dreams are dreams. Dreams are <laughs> dreams. Well, you know, it's, it's what's interesting is when we're starting to do um uh, consider various IPs uh Sometimes ones that, that pull a tremendous amount of memories or, or fondness aren't actually interesting places to explore. So a lot of the things that we, we end up leaning on or looking towards as serious potential future walkabout courses is those that, that, that give a wish fulfillment. I get to go there. I get to go to the labyrinth. I get to be in the labyrinth. I get to see these characters. That's a wish fulfillment. Uh, I get to go on Mist Island and with my friends and play a round of golf. That's wish fulfillment. Um, so th- those are high on our list for which ones we choose. Uh, as far as ones that I want to work on, like I said, there are some that we are working on that, I, that are wonderful. Um, but for me, it's anything that, that, that pulls me into a world that I didn't think in my daily life I could ever experience, which is really the reason I went into a theme park business was that when you get on a boat in Anaheim and you go to the Caribbean and watch pirates sack a town and set it ablaze, that's just not something you normally get to experience in Anaheim. And I wanted to be a part of that and design those things. And I feel that the same itch is scratched when we're working on a submarine in 20,000 leagues under the sea that you get to explore and witness a squid attack at the end. Uh, it's, it's sort of wish fulfillment that... that I like to participate in the, the 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 act of giving that gift to our players.
0: I get a laugh out of it every time my, my other half puts on the headset because I'm like in awe every time I pick up it up and I'm like, you gotta check out this level. She's like, Hogwarts? <laughs> Hogwarts? Can could can, can you like tell somebody about Hogwarts? I was like, I'm pretty sure they know about Hogwarts. <laughs> and I mean that would be a really cool one. But I, I as you were talking there. And I like I don't know why, but I immediately thought of Futurama, mm-hmm. and the conceivability of it being like animated, like walkabout, but in cartoon form. Because you can go into those worlds, and the, oh man, I I don't know why my brain just went there, <laughs> but I just like you said something. I was like, wow, that would be cool, mm-hmm. or like springfield i don't know be Mm -hmm. something different so let's Uh, just take
1: a, a a step back because you worked with disney you worked as a disney Imagineer, you worked on making uh theme parks and amusement rides and stuff like that how does that and your experience with that compare to working on something like walkabout um and and what are like the similarities versus the things that are different
2: well, the similarities are we are telling a story in a in a linear space. So when you go to a theater to see a performance, you're locked down in your seat, and everything happens within the framework of the proscenium. In a theme park, you your seat lifts up and propels you into the the scenery, and then moves you around. And very much like a film, takes you from one scene to the next. Except it's a, it's a you know you're using locomotion to uh, this happens, and then I opened into this space, and then I went to that space. Uh, in a theater, like a t- movie theater, pretty much everything's locked off. Everything you're going to look at is in front of you. Uh, at a theme park, you have a neck, so you can like look up and backwards and look in places that the designers hadn't necessarily thought that you would look. So it's on the designers to design things in a way that compositionally and color and lighting and theatrics and sound make you look at the place that they want you to look at. You're telling a story, so you kind of want their attention to be here. They turn a corner, you want your attention to be there. So all of that is very similar to the kind of stuff we're doing in Walkabout. Uh, each of those environments, Labyrinth, is a perfect one. As you turn a corner, you are presented with a precomposed, you know, composition of what we want you to look at next the characters the environment Uh, you can look anywhere but really all the details go into that thing we want you to look at so that's very similar to the theme park world what's very different is that a theme park attraction can take three to five years uh hundreds of millions of dollars uh go through the hands of three thousand different people all who have a say as to what the finished product is going to look like and open in a part of the world that you may never be invited to go visit so uh Although there's that similarity. Also, you have to deal with things like ADA requirements and safety and fire codes and all that. Uh, We do have limitations in the video game world in that we are on a quest, which is really basically a telephone attached to your face. So there's not a whole lot of muscle behind what we're creating. But we're really using a tremendous amount of tricks of the trade to be able to get as much on that as possible so that you feel like you're immersed in the space uh, while you're still able to do it on a on an untethered, um, headset. Um, personally, I think the similarities outweigh the differences aesthetically. Uh, but, uh, I am thrilled that I get to open a new attraction every six weeks instead of every five years.
0: The, and that's and so are we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we love it. Um, I've seen the Imagineering documentary twice on Disney plus. I don't know if you've, you've dabbled. It's like, Oh yeah. yeah. I,
2: it's like, it was like a yearbook for me. Like, Oh, it's so, Oh, it's (laughs) the, the one
0: thing that they did, which I thought was really cool. And I'm, I'm wondering what the similarities or differences are is when they were talking about building the theme parks, building the, the areas they built miniature tiny towns, which they could walk through. Now, With VR, a lot of it's just you throw on your headset and you go into these workspaces and you kind of conceptualize there. Do you have any sort of on your like workbench or table, like models that you can like work with and play with in the real world? And how does that kind of
2: work? Well, uh, absolutely. And you saw that all over the Imagineering Story documentary uh, Walt was really particular in that as the design was progressing, they would do what they call a show model, which is a fully painted 2 scale version of the attraction, both the exterior and the interior. And in the case of the rides, they actually would uh, elevate the each side of the ride track on either side of these sort of tall tables. And you would either walk through or sit in a rolling chair and push yourself through the model. So you, your eyes would be at the same level of the attraction that you were, you were building. Um, I've been a real evangelist to, to uh, VR as a design tool because I thought, why not build the ride and ride it before you build it physically? Uh, one of the realities in the old school way of doing attractions is you put a hard hat on, you get out into the field and you realize, oh, that tree's much bigger than I thought it was gonna be, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you have an opportunity of uh, experiencing it in, in VR, one of the gifts of VR, is that it uh, It tells you in the first 10 seconds what isn't working, like, oh, that's, that tree's too big. And those decisions can be made early on. So uh, at Walkabout, there's really no need, need for us to build physical models, uh, especially since we work remotely. But we, what we do use a lot is Gravity Sketch, which allows for multiple people to be in the same model at the same time. And so at the very, very beginnings of, one of these courses, uh, Henning, Lucas, and I will get together Sometimes in person, sometimes remotely, put on a headset, jump into Gravity Sketch, and we'll, like sort of a sixth arm octopus, we just start to build and design in the roughest possible way a 3D, 3D ref, representation of what that course is going to eventually be. And then my job is then to take that and then start drawing views of that model. More than anything, is to just show it back to Lucas and Henning and say, is this what we're doing? <laughs> is this what you had in mind? and we start refining. And as we refine the the look and the design and the drawings, we also start refining the model. So we replace those scribbly bits with gray boxed versions. And then uh, everything is to scale. At any moment, you can jump and stand on each hole to see what it feels like. In fact, we have a palette of nothing but but 18 sort of generic holes, uh, little greens with a flag and one avatar. And we start placing those around as placeholders, so volumetrically, we can design the environment, and then we replace those with the actual designed holes uh, quickly after that.
1: So, from um, a design point, like I was looking at through your portfolio online and stuff like that, and I, your art style and and your animation style is very unique and very detailed. And um, was there? Did you find any difficulty? going from the amount of detail that you put into your artwork to, I don't want to say downscaling or downsizing it, but going from something highly detailed to a low poly design. So was there difficulties coming up with these conceptual ideas of these like, I don't know, like a, a grand arena and then having it downsized to a low poly version of
2: that? Was there the difficult any difficulty in, in that transition for you? Actually, quite the opposite. Uh, When I was doing the the 3D models in the theme park world that were going to be previewed on VR, I'd have to build them low poly because uh, the danger is you can very, very quickly get really smooth surfaces and nice turning radiuses and immediately have a model that's either impossible to view in VR or makes your client sick to their stomach because the frame rate's so bad. So I've had to really rain down my, uh, my poly budget. And also working at their.com and inview.com, we also were working in really low poly models. So in a way, uh, the low poly model is like the concept model in the theme park world. We just have taken that concept model and then we've applied a, a lot of uh, theatricality with the lighting and the effects. And walk about. So I'm really, really comfortable, and I, I personally really like the the constraints of low poly because it, it allows you to uh, to say a lot with very little.
1: It takes some of the stress away from having to be a perfectionist, right?
2: Well, we're not doing photoreal, <laughs> and what's interesting is we get a lot of uh, one of the compliments we get is they go, "Why is this so nice?" I mean, this there's, there's, not, like, there's like there's no textures other than color. It's really, really, really simple, and yet, like Shangri La Hard Mode, is just one of one of the most idyllic places ever to just hang out and visit people in, despite it's the fact so of chill. the limit, limitations. It's incredibly chill. One
1: of my favorite uh, courses to just hang out in uh, is actually Arizona Modern. Just like in the evening. It's just so kind of relaxing. Now, granted, uh, that had one of the h- hardest fox hunts that we've ever done. Yeah. But um, that is a nice thing about, uh, I think that's what stands out a lot to Sean and I when we play is that how relaxing the games the game is because you can just go in there and because they're not super detailed, you don't have to focus on every little bit of detail in the 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 course you can just enjoy it. and um more often than not you know if sean and i either of us have a st- stressful day we'll send each other a message to say like you want to play walkabout yep we'll be on in in an hour <laughs> and we just play like two or three courses and just relax that way so it is really nice you know having not like kind of being able to shut your brain down Right, Agreed. like where every day we're we're bombarded by all these different stimuli and everything. Like everything needs to be high quality, high details, and everything like that. And and jumping into uh, a game of walkabout mini golf where things are low poly and you can just kind of relax and enjoy the story that's being told. It is it is really nice. Um, now one thing I uh, I, I know a lot of people wonder about. Uh, people know what a director is. People know what a producer is. People don't necessarily know what an art director is or what an art director does. Can you explain, uh, maybe in layman's terms, you know, the basics of what your job entails and and where you fit in in the whole design process from
2: start to finish? Right. Uh, well, art director uh, is is often someone who's worked up the ranks as an artist initially, who's been producing images that have been there to support whatever the project is, whether it's a theme park or a video game. Art director is just sort of more, it's more of a of a, an overseer, a, a creative overseer who can draw. Uh, so in the case of with Walkabout, uh, I'm a facilitator for Lucas and Henning to help visualize their ideas really quickly. And whether that is sketching vignettes or building um, low poly initial models or doing uh, sort of bird's eye illustrations, that sort of uh, elevated view looking down over the course to see all the pieces, it's a communication tool that then is handed to the various other members of the the team so that we all have the same potential aesthetic direction as to what it's going to look like. Uh, Since walkabout has such a very definite defined style in our low poly aesthetic. Uh, we all kind of just organically know what that look is. So more, uh, my role is to is to lay out uh, the progression of the of the holes, what the environment is you're going through, and then what I like to do is is participate uh, in uh, the set deck uh, part of that as well. It's um, uh, Emma is taking a lot of that role over now too, where we we come in, the thing is playable, it's it's getting more polished. It's all those little details that start to bring in the, the sense of life. So uh, early on, I'm doing that now with one of our courses, uh, sketching out some potential visual gags or little vignettes that describe uh, life in a submarine or what, what it might be like to be attacked by squid or what is the design of the mini-sub before we build it as a 3D model that you're going to ride in when you come and dock to the side of the Nautilus. Um, so I do as much drawing on physical paper as I do 3d modeling, but, but I would say most of my stuff, if not a hundred percent of it is stuff that you'll never necessarily see. It's all there to support the finished product, which you'll eventually play when we release it.
0: That's, excuse me. That's awesome. As I clear my throat, uh, sorry about that. When, uh, we were talking a little bit before David, uh, asked that question specifically we were talking a little bit more about like the low poly and how it's like a very relaxing game go focusing back again on twenty thousand. the one thing i noticed and i've played it a little bit more than david so i'm hopeful that you can help me with this don the idea of making the ocean completely black to me was a mind-blowing thing that you guys have done and the reason it changed my perspective of how you guys are developing VR games is I have to focus on just the course. The one thing, especially about like um, the the ruins, uh, what's, uh, sorry, Babylon and uh, Labyrinth is I want to fly around the whole map. And I eventually get to the point where I fly past the ship on Babylon and I look back and like, you see that walls aren't complete. And that's that's my own doing. I'm trying to fly out as far as I possibly can. I want to see what the limits are. The thing that I found so unique about 20,000 is there's none of that. I did a fly around the ship. The ship looks immaculate. Everything inside is so detailed, but there's nothing pulling my eyes away from it. Even um, when you do like deep space, it's, it's all very like you just want to look around. You want to look at the satellites you want to explore. I didn't feel like that was there. Was that a creative decision to really focus on the course or what, what was kind of the motivation behind blacking
2: out everything? Well, uh, we knew in advance, even just the idea of doing the Nautilus, we knew that there were going to be high expectations that it was going to be explorable and that it was going to be densely packed, uh, which is something we, you're correct. We hadn't done before. We, we, ha- we, get a lot of, uh, we get away with a lot of tricks uh, to allow so much stuff to appear on your quest. Uh, so that when, when you're in this valley, we don't render the trees in the next valley, basically, you know, so that uh, we're not constantly having to crunch all those polygons all the time. Uh, but by shoving everything inside this sort of dollhouse of, of content, we had to, we knew we had to be really careful about the quantity of things we use. So we basically spent our entire budget on the inside of the sub as opposed to outside in the water. Um, also, we're developing some other things, in the future that uh, have content in it that we didn't want to give away like we we want each one to have something special we don't necessarily get a future course and go oh yeah they had that in in the Nautilus so we decided to just really lavish all of our attention on the interior although and uh, the, the the contrary to that is if you played the hard course it has quite a vast uh, landscape outside the sub because the hard course, you've, you've actually settled at the bottom of the ocean and you're, you're wedged over a crevasse down into a pit of sort of lava surrounded by floating uh, mines um, with all the light shining up its belly so that when you're inside the sub, there's this really, really bright orange raking light that's sort of shooting through the interior. Our goal with the hard courses is to see whether or not we can create much, much different experiences while using the same space basically. And a lot of that's done with our lighting.
1: That's the one thing I, that's the one thing I have noticed is that a lot of the, the, uh, hard courses, they end up being in the evening or at night and the courses themselves are the same. Some of the maps and, 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 uh, the design will change a little bit, but just changing the lighting itself makes it feel completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, Labyrinth was a, a prime example of that. Um, actually, my favorite one to play the hard mode is um, El Dorado, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because it's in the middle of a thunderstorm, and I love I love rain and I love thunderstorms and stuff like that. So I could literally just spend hours just hanging out there. But uh, it, the fact that you guys are able to create essentially two very different experiences using the same map, or the same uh, environment is, is phenomenal. Because, you know, people might think of it saying, Oh, well, I'm, I'm, it's just one course, but really, it's not, it's, it's two separate courses. But, and, and the story that you're telling as well is very different. Right? Because with the fox hunts, you either have puzzles that you have to solve or riddles or whatnot which tells a story in itself so we've already experienced on the the easy mode or the easy mode the uh the story that you want us to tell visually but then on the fox hunt you can tell an an even more in-depth story which is pretty cool now in regards to say the fox hunts do you have any uh input and, and control on kind of like how those play out
2: well, during the concepting phase, we'll talk about what the options and the potentials are, and uh, especially in the future, we've got some really fun ones that are very in- locked into the story of the environment in ways that we are we, we are just touching on now in the the current released ones. Um, I would say Henning is the master of the fox hunt. It's his one of his favorite things to do, and he'll craft and is often thinking about that fox hunt from the very first day we're conceiving of of a course. Uh, and there's also a desire to make the fox hunts very different. So some are very visual, and some are very puzzle oriented. Uh, when uh, mist arrives uh, next month, you'll see that there is definitely an, uh, an homage to the puzzleness uh, that we expect from the mist games, uh, and that's going to be very apparent in the fox hunt for that one as well. So we're we're always trying to to change up and and surprise our players with new environments, but we're also trying to do the same thing with how they interact with the environment with the fox hunt.
0: So Don, myself and David, we used to live really close together and now we don't. We live 18 hours apart, which is challenging for us. But the one thing that we always have is VR um, and our like show with you and our, our listeners. But I want to tell you a, a little story about Labyrinth. Now, David and I played Labyrinth with a friend of mine for the first time when it released and david if i could have seen his face he sounded like he had childhood (laughs) when he played the 18th hole oh my god um for for it all started when we traveled from 17 to 18 and the the design and concept incredible thank you for thinking of that if that was you (laughs) but the finale to 18 David's reaction was something I've never heard before. David, do you want to talk about your experience? <laughs> well,
1: well you, for, for people who haven't played um, Labyrinth or Hole 18, first off, you should be doing that. <laughs> uh, secondly, th- just the fact that the Labyrinth, you know, one of the biggest things that I remember from like that movie is the, the glass orb that David Bowie p- plays with or the Goblin King plays with the whole time. So hole 18, you're in this, I don't know. I, I don't really know how to explain it, but you're in this kind of floating environment where everything kind of goes to this glass orb. And I'm like, oh my God, that's it. That's the the Goblin King's uh, glass orb. But uh, it was one of these holes that obviously you have to hit the the ball a distance into this thing. And we had no idea what was going to happen. And my God, when I hit that ball there and that glass orb blew up and then everything kind of fell together. I like Sean said, yeah, I, I pretty much squealed like a, a little girl. Uh, it, was, it was actually quite, uh, it, it was unbelievable because it wasn't anything that we had seen before in any of the courses that we've that we've played before Um, where did that idea come from and are we going to see more things like that that just you something happens and you have no no idea what's going to happen when you get the ball in this hole or when you go to the go to the next course or whatnot
2: yeah well I can say yes we are we are definitely working on things yes. that will do <laughs> do things that you are not that are that will challenge your idea of what a miniature golf course can be. Um, well, the way we laid out labyrinth uh, specifically was that labyrinth. The film is written very much like Alice in Wonderland. It's you know it's it's Terry Jones, it's uh, Brian Froud, it's uh, Jim Henson, and they're basically taking Alice through, you know through Wonderland. And so it's a series of events, a series of environments and characters, and so we have to break our story into eighteen, no matter what. With and we hope that nine will be kind of a little sort of a pre-finale, sort of a halfway point. Uh, so we just took this, basically the film, the labyrinth, and we just broke it into eighteen. Uh, There's more than 18 experiences in that film. So some things got left out, but there were, it became really, really apparent. Well, we have to meet Hoggle. We have to enter the labyrinth the way she entered it. We have to see that worm. We have to go to that door with those two guys in it. We got to go down that thing with the hands and the, you know, so it became really, really apparent. We knew we had to get to the throne room. We absolutely knew we needed to get to that, that upside down sort of Escher uh, uh, inspired maze. And then of course we had to have the end which is the the world of of the goblin king is shattered so all those pieces of the maze are floating in this sort of nebulous uh area this dreamlike space and of course you have to do the thing that is done in the film and you have to shatter that that globe so it was kind of laid out for us we knew we had to do it there was no no what are we going to do um, but it does sort of turn the pressure up on us to make the eighteen, the eighteenth hole, feel like a finale. You know, with the the squid attack, it definitely feels like it's the the ice, it's the candle on the cake. Um, after all the other things you've experienced.
1: Now, a, in regards to working with like licensed uh, IPs, uh, one thing that I had really wished that Labyrinth had was. Uh, Dance, Magic, Dance on repeat or some re- rendition of that. Um, what is, is there a, a difficulty or a reason why? And, and don't get me wrong. I love the original music in all of the courses, but when you have something like the labyrinth, you know, Dance, Magic, Dance is one of the most well-known songs from that movie. Um when you're working with an IP that has something like this, that has a, a very unique theme song or something like that, is there something that's holding back, holding the development team back from uh, even doing some sort of like remix or uh, their own rendition of that that music? Um, because I feel like it would just add to the experience of like the the nostalgia of playing these these courses that we, you know, we grew up watching the, the labyrinth. I've, I've lost track of how many times I've seen that movie. Right. Yeah. I actually ended up playing it on my phone, the, the music, the song on my phone through the headset, <laughs> just to annoy Sean and uh, our other buddy that we were playing with. I'm like, guys, we can't play labyrinth without listening to dance magic dance. Right. So
2: it's true. He did do this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, uh, when you're working with an IP, you are paying for the rights to be able to use the imagery, but you're also paying for the rights to use any voice recording that may have been done by someone. And each individual has a different price based upon what they said. And the music is another uh, level of, of, um, of licensing fee. So um, often it's, it's much more, it's, it's, it's a lot less to do with how much we want it and much more how, how much can we afford. Um, so in the writing of the music, the music is in the spirit of the film, but it can't be in any way the film music. Even gotcha. certain bars can, can be licensed, so you, can't, you cannot use it. So it was more of a financial decision than anything to make sure that we could afford to produce it. And, uh, and what's been so nice and, and really wonderful about the fact that our audience is willing to pay for each DLC... Is that each one pays for the next one, and so uh, we didn't want to charge more money for the labyrinth. We want it to be just like any any uh, DLC, and so you know, getting the license for for those pieces of music or that voice talent or any voice talent really uh, would have brought the the dollar amount up. So it was sort of a decision: let's deliver the place and the mood and the and the, the ambiance. Uh, and not necessarily, you know, have a needle drop of the the recordings from the film.
0: No, well, we originally asked about the cost and we were like, oh, man, 350 every like two months is really a lot. And then the amount of work, time and effort that goes into these things, you're like, wow, this is incredible. I like I, I'd be willing to pay a little bit more. I mean, the one musical moment in Walkabout that I'll always remember is the waltz in original Gothic. Nah, hard. Because you're Uh like, wow, I like it felt so magical to be in there, which leads me to two questions I have for viewers or from listeners. Question number one is We know Mist is coming. Will there be a two part Christmas centric course? People want Christmas content in Walkabout, apparently. Uh So. That the question was, we they appreciate that like the waltz or uh, original gothic does have a hard mode that is kind of Christmassy, but like getting lost in a Christmas or winter wonderland would be question number one. Is that ever going to be on the menu? Uh,
2: not specifically for mist, though, right? It's, no, it's not just, for Miss. Just in okay.
0: general, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no yeah, Christmas the... overlay
2: on Miss Island. Um, <laughs> it's definitely on our list of something that we want to do. It's. It, uh, I have to say that the course that we're working on for the holidays will be well received and wonderful, but sadly, it's not Christmas themed. Um, but definitely, uh, a, a holiday-themed uh, courses definitely are on our list of things to uh, to consider for the future.
0: Amazing. Now, question number two that I had um, from one of our listeners and actually fellow party member of our walkabout community is you guys have dabbled with gravity now that you've released Labyrinth. Are physics, specifically ball physics, ever going to be on the menu? Yes. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I like how it's just yes. It's like I can't <laughs> give you anything else the amount of times I've wanted to like hit the ball with the heel of my club to try and spin it blows my mind, but it would also make the game so much harder because then you're also working on like,
2: well, the trajectory. It's, so let me caveat the, let me caveat the yes. Uh, the, the change in physics that happens in the labyrinth and whole uh, 17 is much more what I'm talking about as far as the way in which the ball will interact with the environment, less about how you interact with the ball fair so in that particular way yes we are we are playing with physics um uh actively oh interesting okay
0: i i will take it i will take it because the game gets better and better every single time we play it
2: yeah now we're always working on it and you, you know you can grab a ball from behind your shoulder and and physically place it or toss it
1: i just learned that actually today
2: yeah so th- so in that way you can do anything you want with that ball once you have it in your hand.
1: Sean, did you know that you could pick up the ball?
2: No, I had no idea. I
0: <laughs> I literally just play I like I'm so focused on trying to be under like minus 9 or more on every course that that's all I care about.
1: He actually gets really <laughs> upset. He actually gets really upset if I do better than him. <laughs> uh-huh. And I don't even try oh. half the time, so
2: so on Welcome Island or any of the practice modes, you just you reach your hand back by your ear and you, you grab the grip button and you're holding your ball. And you can drop it anywhere or you can throw it or you can fly in the air and drop it from a thousand feet or you can hurl it at your friend or you can try to get it into holes. So uh, yeah, you can interact the ball with that with the ball in that way. Now, why uh, did you tell him? That? <laughs> I
1: know, right? <laughs> um, now, Welcome Island—that was one of the first uh, major projects that you worked on with uh, with uh, Mighty Coconut and Walkabout Mini Golf. Mm-hmm. Is there are there any plans to expand Welcome Island to be more than what it is right now?
2: Um. Well, you know, originally the genesis for Welcome Island was that people were showing up early or on time for a match and their their fellow players weren't, weren't as, as um, on time. And so mm-hmm. you just sort of stood there mm-hmm. and we thought, gosh, it would really be nice if there was something that you could do here. Uh, so we had a long list of the kinds of things that you would do here and we whittled it down to uh, the, the putting green and the driving range, but we do have other things on the list for potential future interactions, whether it happens at welcome Island or it happens as part of something else, uh, we'll have to see, but, uh, we were really, really happy that welcome Island was so well received. Um, and then also it, it is very theme parky. I mean, down to, to a, a less than obvious homage to parts of the Caribbean with that raft ride going through the, the cave. But, uh, uh, we just want to create a wonderful place to hang out, and we do. Have, we've heard from players that sometimes they don't go anywhere but Welcome Island and just shoot the breeze, you know, putt around, practice, sit in the little hot tub area uh, yeah, up yeah. top, and uh, just chill.
1: There's it's... there's been uh, plenty of times where we've s- joined in to start a game, and then you know, 45 minutes later, we're we haven't even started playing a course because we're still you know trying to beat each other at the uh, the shooting range, or the uh, or the driving range, or or on one of those random practice holes or whatever. But
0: yeah, trick shots are a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um. So I have one final question before we go, and we did this to Emma and Edward, so we we're not singling you out. We promise. But there's some rumors floating around that there's some some other courses coming with a little uh, Jules Verne flavor. Are you allowed to give us anything beyond mist coming out? Just even a little taste.
2: Well, you know, the the Jules Verne's the poster pretty much says it all as far as what the three courses are going to be. So we the first one being uh 20,000 leagues under the sea and then coming along will be journey to the center of the earth and then eventually our interpretation of around the world in 80 days. So uh, you're going to have
0: avatars of The Rock and Jackie Chan. Perfect. You heard it here first.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as far as the other ones, we're working on. Um, like I said, Lucas really wants to surprise, and also uh, it's kind of like a, a well-designed meal. You want each each course to have a different flavor, and we try not to have two things like we like uh, uh, Shangri La and. Um, Babylon is is definitely what people said is, call it a zen course or a, a chill course. It's just a really, really pleasant place to be, kind of quiet, very natural. So we, we, we have some of those coming in the future that are just really pleasant places to be in. We have other ones that are more sort of labyrinth size and scale where you have lots of things that are happening and things to do and places to explore. Uh, I think while we were working on uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, the initial phases, it really, really... Tickled my eight-year-old, you know, go in the backyard dig a hole. Uh, self, the idea that I wasn't just watching people go, this, you know, descend into the earth, I get to go do that, and I get to call up my friends, and we get to do it together. Uh, that's really, really exciting and thrilling, and very different than anything we've done prior. Same with um, Twenty Thousand Leagues. It was we hadn't done anything that compact, uh, the sort of Wes Anderson, you know, dollhouse shot of all the rooms that you can go inside of. Um, So the future ones that we're working on, uh, um, hopefully you'll see that, uh, wow, that's really different than the last one. And also when we come to announcing future IPs, you'll go, wow, I never thought of that as being appropriate for a miniature golf (laughs) course now that I think about it. In fact, I think our greatest compliment uh, when we announced the missed course was the initial day we got basically walkabout players said yay that sounds great um but the next day we got sort of very very dedicated fans of mist and one of the persons uh on twitter said sacrilege i can't wait (laughs) (laughs) so uh
1: when we when we spoke with edward and emma uh they had mentioned some easter eggs that they like to put into courses are there anything that that you like to put into courses that don't necessarily stand out, but if people know that you put it there, they can be like, oh yeah, Don did that. Uh,
2: well, I always love for there to be um a vignette or two that that's either suggests a joke or allows someone to build a story on it. So uh when I came in, uh Eldorado was well in development. I mean, it was like probably 80% done. Um, I got a chance to go in there and see whether or not there was some things we could add. And one of the things I added was the squashed conquistador reaching for the gold mm-hmm. mask mm-hmm. without being able to, <laughs> to reach for it. So uh, anything that, and this is a theme park thing too, is anything that I can stumble on and go, oh, that's funny. I see what happened here. Or one person sees it, gets to sort of, come up with the punchline and then they get to deliver it like, Oh, you have to come over here and see this thing. So anytime that we can do that um, in the Nautilus, it's uh, I fought for there being one of the cruise quarters doors is ajar, So you can see the bunk bed and there's a concertina sitting on the bed and a little light and a sink and a, and a sea chest um, things that allude to more depth than is necessarily in the space that, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the the act of playing golf, but has everything to do with adding believability and depth to the experience.
0: That that room in particular, I walked in immediately, and it's like, oh, lost ball.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> and it had a lost ball in
0: it. <laughs> yeah, it just turned around, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But like, I was drawn to it. So, Don, before we go, I gotta ask you, if you were to pitch this game out in 30 seconds to somebody who's never played it, but you want them to play your
2: game, how would you present your game? Well, that'd be tough because, uh, because on the surface, just telling somebody, Hey, guess what? We can go play miniature golf in VR. That kind of sells itself. Uh, that's actually one of the best parts of the game is that anybody can, could pretty much grab a putter and see a ball, hit it and you're, you're in, you're playing. Um, I think one of the nicest compliments I've gotten, my daughter, who hadn't been interested in playing at all while I had been working on it, asked one night if she could play. And we went to uh, Shangri-La. And after we played the, around Shangri-La hard, and I said, hey, before we go, do you have a minute? I'd like to fly out to the farthest monastery, sit back, sit on a rooftop, and just look back at, um, at Shangri-La. And that's that view with all the lanterns floating up in the Mm -hmm. night sky up to the moon and there's the really low poly Himalayas behind it. And my daughter looked at me and she said, I finally get it. And that's what I, I don't think we can describe to somebody when you're playing the game until you've played it, that there's an, an, a non-tangible, intangible something that's going on in these environments that I would wish that I could give an elevator pitch to, uh, to somebody but now what I do is I just put a headset on them, and they go, oh, now I understand. <laughs> and so uh, I just encourage you to get a headset and put it on your face. <laughs> I,
1: I have an elevator pitch for you. A Please. scene on screen podcast golf ball. For the game, even a concept, Uh, we we asked Edward and Emma, and they they just laugh at me as well.
0: (laughs) But so so far, we're three for three for laughs at the request. One day we'll get it. (laughs) It'll be the creator series. One course will just have
2: everybody who always
0: interviews people from Mighty Coconut. It'll be like every IGN will
2: have a ball. Yeah. someday someday maybe in the future there'll be a shop where you can customize your own, but definitely not something we're working on. Yeah, it sounds like something you're definitely about working <laughs> on. <laughs> I,
0: I may or may not be working on my golf swing right now. We don't know. <laughs> so, Don, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Our listeners probably enjoyed it as much as we did, if not more. For myself and David, we have nothing but gratitude for you coming on. And we're so excited to continue to work with yourself, David, and the team and trying to make sure that we can share as much muddy coconut goodness as possible. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, guys. So that is it for this one. If you like what you're hearing, obviously subscribe, find us on Instagram, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you like to find your podcast for myself and David. That's me. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the scene on screen podcast. david yo have you been living in your lounge wear for the past few years and you're in need of some new high quality and stylish clothing
1: i literally feel like i've been living in rags
0: now what if i told you our friends at diameter apparel have got you covered their unique and sophisticated polos will keep you looking sharp whether it's for the golf course or attending an evening dinner party no way
1: Their Canadian-made, fully sublimated performance jerseys are super comfortable, and they will keep you cool while playing your favourite sport, taking first place with your squad, or even while you're working out.
0: I, for one, love my three-quarter zip. It's lightweight and feels great even on the disc golf course. But, Sean, where can I find out what they have? You can check out their latest designs by visiting DiameterApparel.com. Again, that's DiameterApparel.com.